If women are going to be in public life, they somehow need to convey the idea that they are perfect. Certainly the underlying message was we can keep it all together. We can kind of keep the more traditional family structure together doing this. Because men can do that, male politicians can do that. You know, it's that really that classic dilemma that women face between being liked and being tough. And you don't get to be both. And men get to be both. It was a tough campaign because I felt like I was the problem. Hey there, it's Kate Graham here. And this is No Second Chances. Only a dozen women have served as a Canadian prime minister or premier. They cross all political stripes, span Canada's vast geography, and their political careers cover three decades. And yet there are some eerie similarities to their stories. In this podcast series, we're walking alongside these women through their rise and fall in Canadian politics. Last episode, we left off at the peak of Canadian politics, hearing about what the view is like as the Prime Minister or Premier from the very few women who've made it. But as we all know, what goes up must come down. And for some, the fall can be steep. Please welcome our leader, the Honourable Alison Redford. Oh, those were the days. It was 2011, and Alberta was being led by its first female premier, Alison Redford. And like any time someone breaks through a thick glass ceiling, well, it's exciting. It's a time full of celebration and full of hope for change. But that moment doesn't always last long. In Alison Redford's case, it was less than three years before those sounds of celebration turned into this. Alberta Premier Alison Redford has been under fire for her travel expenses. She finally agreed to pay back the money, but the Conservatives' troubles aren't over. Members of her own party are turning on her. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Back up. What happened? How did things fall apart so quickly? Here's the thing. This rapid fall is not uncommon for women in political leadership. In fact, in Canada, our female first ministers tend to last only half as long as male first ministers. Now, you might be thinking, hold on, Kate, that's not quite fair. Times have changed. We used to have leaders who stayed in their role for decades. Think political marathoners like William Lyon Mackenzie King, who was the prime minister for 21 years, or Sir John A. Macdonald, who served for 19 years, or Joey Smallwood, the premier of Newfoundland and Labrador, who was the premier for 23 years. In John A.'s days, women couldn't even vote, let alone run for office or be the leader. So surely it's those historic endurance leaders who are skewing the numbers here, right? Okay, well, how about we just look at the last 50 years then? We've had 111 male first ministers in that time, and they've served an average of 2,060 days, so about two terms in office. We've had 12 female first ministers, and they've lasted an average of 1,198 days, so about 58% the length of time of the men or about one term. So why is that? What happens? I'll just talk about it because it, it, it um, I think there's some things that are still quite raw for me. Alison Redford was Premier of Alberta for 898 days. She resigned in March 2014 amid allegations about travel expenses. I think there was still that idea that you're either still the fairly kind of traditional, typical female that juggles lots of things, or you're the premier. 
And, and, and it's clearly, I mean, this is, this is still for me a, a real sore spot, you know, things like, um, you know, if I ever went anywhere and took Sarah with me, we would make sure that our family paid for that ticket on the plane, even though there was a seat on the plane and I may not have seen her for three weeks. Whereas, you know, if a man takes his child on the plane, he's a good dad. But it's just the idea that, that somehow, you know, when you're, when you were the premier in 2011, that's what you were. Even though one of the reasons that you elected me to be premier is because I was a nice person and I was a mom and I balanced all this stuff. Okay, that's fine. But now you're the premier. And so, you know, you don't, uh, you know, you don't, there are no accommodations made for the fact that you're a mom. There were lots of accusations about me and investigations. She's right. And you can read about these for yourself, including the 68-page auditor report where having her child on a plane with her was deemed an inappropriate personal benefit. But the one that hurt me the most, really hurt me, was when uh, CBC started investigating uh, my, uh, my nanny and... Uh, Angelita worked for us for years and years and years and was a wonderful person. And she also had a part-time job at McDonald's. And one day a CBC journalist came down from Edmonton and went into McDonald's and told her that she needed to know that because she had once been on a government plane with me and my daughter that she could be arrested. And so did she want to talk about how I took care of my daughter? And the only time that Angelita was ever on the plane... (laughs) was a night when I was justice minister and I had come to Calgary for a dinner and my father-in-law had been in the hospital and he died that night. And so I left the dinner and I came home and of course my husband was being what he needed to be and I did need to be in Edmonton the next morning. And so we made an arrangement that I would go back to Edmonton that night as planned and I would take Sarah with me and Angelita would come. And so Angelita did fly on the plane that one time. And it still kind of brings tears to my eyes. The travel expenses scandal was bigger than this one incident. And of course, there are always two sides to a story. And the report flagged a number of larger problems, including ambiguities in the policies themselves, including about having family members on government aircraft. I think that the narrative became, boy, you know, she really, she wasn't a very good mom, was she? You know, and of, and of course, you know, of course that's true. And, you know, how come she had an nanny? Why did her daughter have security? I remember when I first stepped down, um, it was kind of like people were kind of confused about why I did it because there were a lot of internal party stuff going on. And then all of a sudden, three days later, there's some story about some building in Edmonton that I'm theoretically going to build an apartment in for my daughter, which wasn't true and didn't turn out to be true, didn't matter. But it went on and on and on for months and months and years. You know, there's something pretty scary when you're, you you probably don't even think very much about this. Think about every time you fill out, I don't know, mortgage application or passport application, or there's always that question, have you ever been convicted of a criminal offense? And the number of times I've thought to myself, my God, you know, boy, I, sh- I wasn't convicted, but I was investigated. You know, what would that have done to my life? Just so that somebody could score a political point? 
For Kim Campbell, the fall from the peak of political power was even faster than it was for Alison Radford. Campbell was sworn in as Canada's Prime Minister in June of 1993, elected by her party following the departure of Prime Minister Brian Mulroney. The next election was just three months away. You know, I think we knew we, we were trouble, but, but the, uh, the Cretan ads uh, that I had never seen uh, and had nothing to do with creating, I think why I, what I felt, and, and of course, remember, this is pre-internet. So I start the day and I hear that they're going to do some, some ads tomorrow that are a bit negative, and you may hear something from them, but we use a picture that was sort of like the picture used on McLean's magazine and whatever, and it doesn't tell me what's in the ads, and sort of isn't, sort of suggested I might hear something from them. So the next morning I hear something, and people are saying, you know, you've got this, this image of the Cretan, and I said, you know, I understood it was a picture that was used on the cover of McLean's magazine and whatever, whatever. So it's not till the end of that day. I actually, when I, when I talk to people in my riding, and, you know, they say, look, people are tearing up their lawn signs. <laughs> I said, you've got to pull the ads. But I didn't see them until the end of the day when somebody got me a VHS, the hotel I was in in Montreal. And you have to remember that, it, you know, we didn't have that ability to communicate really fast, so I couldn't see them until somebody could give me a video of them. I trusted the reactions of people close to me. And when I saw it, watched it, I was sitting with my stepdaughter who was traveling with me. We were in a hotel in Montreal, or Montreal or Quebec City, I think it was Montreal, and watching them. And my first reaction was, whose side are they on? How could anybody produce that ad and think that I would approve it. But it just was also, it was just so tone deaf and stupid. The party was already in a weak position and running what went down in history as the face ads, it didn't help. Campbell led as the party fell to a crushing defeat. Success has many uh, fathers, failure as an orphan kind of thing. And, and I'm you know, perfectly prepared to, you know, to admit that I, you know, I make mistakes as I, I made mistakes because you know, it was a pretty ridiculous thing. But what was interesting is that as a woman, I was to blame for it all. That was, you know, you will always be. Hell. It's like Hillary Clinton, when people say, well, she was a flawed candidate. And I go, wait a minute. Wait a minute. You know what was being done to suppress her vote. She got 66 million votes. She might not have been perfect. But she was amazing. You know, don't, don't, don't dismiss her loss as saying she was a flawed candidate. She was a great candidate. And maybe her campaign was flawed in that they didn't pick up on, you know, the efforts to suppress their vote in key areas like Milwaukee and others, you know, that they weren't on top of that. But to describe her as a flawed candidate is such, you know, compared to who? Let's hear from another woman who knows this story well former Ontario Premier Kathleen Wynne. She's the second longest-serving female First Minister in Canadian history, after Christy Clark. When she first took office, she had a high approval rating, and she led her party to a surprising majority victory in 2014. But not long after, things started to fall apart. I think two years into our, into our 2014 mandate, so that would have been my th- three years into being Premier, um, we started to see that the the numbers were changing, you know, that we weren't 
um, we weren't doing as well in people's eyes as we uh, as we had been, and um, my personal numbers were going down. So that was the that was sort of the the clue that something had changed. So we had a lot of positive support in Ontario well into those first two years. You know, a lot of um, opinions that the government was on the right track, that we were doing things, that I was. I was popular. Um, in fact, the star would sometimes call me the popular, you know, a popular premier. Um, and then that started to change. And I think there were a number of things that had started to happen. I think that um, the issues around the Sudbury by-election, it became a real political hot potato. It was a hit to um, us as a as a party and as a to me as a my brand. Um, in terms of, we thought she was something other than that. You know, we thought she wasn't going to be involved in the the political machinations. And then here she is, she's involved in the political machinations. I mean, the fact was, I was a leader of the party. I was going to have to be involved in all sorts of things. Um, but I think there was a feeling among people that they didn't want to see me involved in those things. You know, they wanted me to be different somehow. But that was never clearly articulated what different meant. But certainly um, we saw in that opinion research that people started to feel like, oh, well, she's, she's kind of just like the others, you know. And that wasn't the only difficult issue making the headlines. The partial sell-off of Hydro One. The fact was I'd made a commitment to build transit. We needed cash because we couldn't just borrow all the money. And so we needed to do something to raise some of that cash. And we we did a year-long process to determine how to do that. And um, broadening the ownership of Hydro One what we de- was what we decided to do. I worked very hard to make sure that anything we did around Hydro One actually wasn't going to hurt people. It wasn't going to raise electricity prices. And it wasn't going to affect their um, delivery of power. In fact, it could improve their delivery of power. But it was the hardest political issue because it became about whether I believed in privatization or public power and whether I was being true to my um, myself in terms of support for the public good. Sometimes the big issues turn the small issues into big issues. Towards the end of my time as premier, there was, well, you shouldn't wear so many scarves because people, people think that looks like you're rich. It's like, some of these scarves cost $10. Like, what are you talking about? And it was that, you know, there was that kind of confusion about who we want her to be that kind of seeped into um, the narrative. And I would say the the less popular I was, the more panicked people were about that. You know, are you, you know, are you wearing the right makeup? Are you, you know, are you wearing the right clothes? Are you just showing up just right? And it's ridiculous. Wynn went from being cited as the popular premier to being called the least popular premier in Canada. It was a hard, hard campaign. It was almost a foregone conclusion that we were going to lose, and that was that was really hard. So I had to I had to continue to believe that it was possible to win because we had fantastic candidates all over the province who were running great campaigns and they were feeling good on the ground because they were hearing at the door that that they you know people liked the stuff we were doing but I knew that I knew that they were also hearing that they didn't like me and that that was that was really hard for our candidates so it was it was a tough campaign because I felt like I was the problem 
plummeting popularity is difficult for premiers, even more so in the heat of an election. So that was a really painful juncture. It was very, very hard because I felt that I had let people down. And um, that was never what I had wanted to do. That was the last thing that I wanted to do. I, f- I always felt that as a leader, I wanted to lead from the middle, you know, from the, the heart of the team, and to feel that I was the thing that was getting in the way of these good people getting elected. It was just the most painful thing. This rapid decline in popularity, well, it's a pretty common part of the story. You heard it from Alison Redford, you heard it from Kim Campbell, and now from Kathleen Wynne. And guess what? Christy Clark had a similar experience. What happened with me was, um, you know, it's that really that classic dilemma that women face between being liked and being tough. And you don't get to be both. And men get to be both. You can like a tough guy, but people don't like tough, tough women. And people don't think women are tough enough if they like them. So you can't, they're opposite ends of the spectrum. So you're either one or the other, or you're somewhere in between. Heaven forbid you're somewhere in between. So um, I kind of started out as really likable. I'd been in people's homes a lot because I was, I was on the radio. And, um, you know, and then I went, then I became tough. And, um, you know, she's just too tough. She just doesn't, she's, I don't like her. I don't like her. For Clark, the things fall apart moment came in a very unusual way after winning an election. Now, we didn't lose this, the election either. We won the election. We were, we were short by one seat. So um, I think there were enough people, in fairness, that put that aside. You know, they said, okay, well, maybe I don't like her, but, it, you know, she's doing a decent job. Enough of them, but not quite enough. And, um, you know, I certainly have heard that about Kathleen Wynne. I've heard it about a lot of female premiers. And, you know, I think Kathleen had it way worse than I did. Just um, because with me, <laughs> I think people com- would also complain about my public, you know, public policy decisions, right? They, if they didn't like them. Welfare rates aren't high enough. Okay, fair enough. That's a legitimate concern if that's one you have. We think the carbon tax should be higher, you know, or whatever. Um, but I remember with Kathleen, people wouldn't even say what it was they were mad at her about. They would just say, we don't like her, which is the most... People do not do that with men. People just don't do it. People did it with me, though, too. I mean, it was, we, we would apparently see that in focus groups, and I don't know what it is about her. I just don't like her. I don't like looking at her, hearing her voice. I don't like looking at her face. Kathy Dunderdale, former premier of Newfoundland and Labrador, also knows what it's like to lose the support of the people around you, or as she phrases it, as the water on the beach starts to change. You know, we were new, we were fresh, we were, you know, we were new government, we weren't going anywhere. Uh, and so, you know, that was very, but, but as you get further into your mandate and your numbers are dropping and so on, and then people become worried about their own political future and so on, the sand shift, you know, they, they say here, the water on the bead starts to change. And then, you know, when people start to think, more about their own personal uh, survival and success and so on. You know, a political party is, is, is not the venue where um, people are going to set all of that aside uh, for the greater good. That's not how politics works, and I don't care what party you're in. 
you know, it's what's politically expedient for you. Like most things, like people, generally voters never own any responsibility uh, for the people they put in office. <laughs> And, and uh, you know, what the expectation is and how they influence that. Um, and nor do members of caucuses, for the most part, you know. It's about, you know, what's important and what's immediate to them. And then you get the bigger issues, you know, because of, of people ask for things. They're not, they're perfectly legitimate what they're asking for perfectly legitimate but you're not able to meet them all you just don't have the means to do it and you're doing your best to deal with what's most important you know and trying to build on that so you know governments can grow old quickly and people can get uh, frustrated and you always got somebody on the other side saying hey look at me I can fix this I have the better idea and so on so there's a lot of you know competing noise and you know we started this episode by talking about the rapid fall of female first ministers and the somewhat perplexing fact that women only last about half as long as men do in our most senior roles to be honest with you i have a hard time making sense of it when i look at these women i see smart professionally accomplished highly educated personable and driven people who step forward to serve are they perfect? Of course not. Did they make mistakes while in office? Sure. Did they do things that people didn't agree with? Definitely. But that's all pretty run-of-the-mill when it comes to politics. In fact, that's what politics is all about. Choices. I can't think of a single political leader, male or female, who everyone agreed with all the time. So then, why is it that the women fall so fast? Well, I asked this very question to each of these women. And here's how Kathy Dunderdale diagnose the underlying issue. I, I think in terms of the expectation that gets built up uh, around what you expect from women almost set us up for failure. And I don't think people have the same tolerance. She wasn't alone in this diagnosis. That expectation of women is very mixed up. People's expectations of how women should be. Expectations. 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 It's expectations, somehow. That somehow, if women are going to be in public life, they somehow need to convey the idea that they are perfect. There are things we expect of all political leaders. We want them to be strong politicians, accomplished in their personal and professional lives, honest, kind, hardworking. But then there are the things that we expect of women that we don't even think about with men. You heard it in this episode. Expectations to look a certain way or expectations to be a perfect mom or a perfect partner. I haven't figured it all out, but I, I, I think, you know, people have less patience with women or with whoever the new person is around that stuff because they took a chance and gave you the opportunity and 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 you haven't met their expectations. So they don't have uh, the same... Uh, they're not prepared uh, to uh, stay with you as long 
as they, uh, you know, the the older ways of doing things, supporting or not supporting people, change when there is something new. And perhaps it's just because people are paying more attention. I don't know. I think there are a bunch of different factors. You know, there are attitudes about what a leader looks like and sounds like and is that just women don't fit. They don't fit the mold. And for some reason, I think that we wear on people not as well. You know, I think that people get tired of a woman's voice, a woman being there. I don't have any empirical evidence to back that up. That's more of a, an anecdotal sort of gut reaction. I think that there's a, a tiring of women that doesn't happen with men just because people are used to having men in leadership roles. And, you know, we maybe fall into it. Maybe we accept the fact that we need to be a little bit like that so that people will... will uh, accept us? I don't know. I, I don't know the answer to that. I'd love to hear what other my former colleagues say about that. And so, you know, and I guess you could make the argument, well, I guess we bring it on ourselves, right? If I decided to go on television and I didn't put makeup on and I didn't brush my hair and I didn't worry about how I looked, then maybe the message I would be sending would be, look, this is, this is me, this is who I am, and, you know, vote for me or don't, or listen to me or don't. But the fact is, I wouldn't get elected. And, um, you know, it's still like that. It's still like that. And, uh, you know, lots of people say, oh, no, no, it's changed. It hasn't changed. But certainly the underlying message was we can keep it all together. We can kind of keep the more traditional family structure together doing this. And because men can do that, male politicians can do that. And, uh, and so there's this idea that, you know, if you're... If you're if you're going to be the woman politician, you still got to keep all the rest of it together. Today we're asking a big question. Why don't we see women succeeding in political leadership roles to the same extent that we see with men? Why do women fall so fast? And it's a hard question to answer. And we're not even getting into the larger question of diversity, where we have some groups like racialized women or women with disabilities who've been almost entirely excluded from these positions in the first place. These women are the first to admit that they don't have all the answers, and I sure don't either. But what I do know is that there is wisdom and insight in hearing their stories. These women are not perfect, but are they not as talented or accomplished or committed as men in these roles? I'm not buying that for a minute. So here's my pitch to you. When things fall apart, we're quick to lay the blame. But maybe, just maybe, some of it rests with us. If we want to see mothers as premiers, well, maybe some of our policies need to change. If on some level we're uncomfortable with how a leader looks or how she speaks, well, maybe we need to think about how we evaluate leaders in the first place. And if we live in a country where women aren't succeeding to the same level that men are, well, maybe that's on us. Thanks for tuning in today to No Second Chances. I know, I know, this story can be kind of dark. Some of what we're sharing with you is hard to hear, but I've got good news for you. The story is taking a positive turn from this point out. Our next episode, coming out on Monday, May the 13th, is called What Doesn't Kill You Makes You Stronger. All of these women weathered the rise and fall of Canadian politics, but they came through it. 
You'll want to hear what they have to say about learning through failure, resilience, and life after politics. Our series will then turn to a much-needed conversation about solutions. You've heard the stories about our female leaders, but they also had some big ideas about what we can do to make Canadian politics a place where anyone can succeed. So stay tuned. We'll see you next time. And as always, you can subscribe and learn more about this project at nosecondchances.ca. Coming up on No Second Chances. First of all, I, I would never give the naysayers the satisfaction of not coping. You know, I mean, why would you ever allow these jerks who never gave you the benefit of the doubt, you know, who were always giving you a hard time, why would you give them the satisfaction of falling apart? I think you learn to respect more the people that have difficult decisions to make because you've been there. You know how difficult it is. As well, you learn the importance of supporting people that make difficult decisions. It makes you a stronger person in every respect. There's just, there's no end to it. Equality is not something that happens. Equality is something that you fight for. No Second Chances is a special project of Canada 2020, written and hosted by me, Kate Graham. It's produced by Sarah Turnbull and I, and recorded and edited by Aaron Reynolds. Our music is composed and performed by Meredith Yeyanos. Mira Ahmad is the Communications and Operations Manager at Canada 2020, which is led by Executive Director Alex Patterson. And this project would not be possible without the generous support of MasterCard. Hey there, it's Sarah from the 2020 Network, brought to you by Interact. If you like what you heard today and want to find out more about what Canada 2020 is up to, add yourself to our mailing list. That's where we share the details of our upcoming events and initiatives. And if you haven't yet already, subscribe to the 2020 Network. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts. We've got four awesome shows suited to everyone's unique tastes. To give you a sense of that, over the last few weeks we've heard from a blockbuster actor, a famous political commentator, a ballet dancer, an academic an author, a journalist. Yeah, you get the gist. So go now, subscribe, rate, and review. I'll catch you back here next time.